Autism Through Cinema. The episode of Autism Through Cinema, which you are about to listen to on Piero Le Fou, was recorded prior to the death of Jean-Luc Godard. We have decided to release this episode now as a tribute to the great director, as a celebration of Godard's work, and the resonance his films have had for neurodiverse audiences. As you will hear in the podcast, Godard's films mean a great deal to me. His early films, especially Abu Souf, served as a gateway for me to French and international cinema more broadly offering female characters with whom I strongly related. I chose Piero Le Fou as the focus of our discussion here, in part as tribute to Anna Karina, who died in 2019. It now feels prescient to dedicate this episode both to her and the maestro himself. Cinema today would not be the same without Godard, many of whose characterizations and stylistic techniques continue to be used as a way of communicating autistic experience on screen. We are grateful to him and the films which, we hope you agree, continue to breed new and fascinating discussion. Au revoir, Godard. A bientôt. Welcome back to Autism Through Cinema podcast. I'm here again with uh, Ethan and Lillian, and we're going to be discussing another film today. Um, if this is your first time joining us on the podcast, uh, sometimes I forget to do this, but like, yeah, please do check out some of our previous episodes. We have covered lots of what weird and wonderful films over the last year, couple of years, really. Um, all sorts of things from Eraserhead to Orlando, Chunking Express, The Batman, uh, Moonrise Kingdom fairly recently, all sorts of things. So please do check out some of our previous episodes. But today um, uh, we are in France and we are within the French New Wave. So I'm going to hand over to Lillian, who's going to give us a bit of an introduction as to, uh, for the film that we're looking at today. So take it away, Lillian. Thank you. Qu'est-ce que je peux faire? Je sais pas quoi faire. Anna Karina winds these words as she walks along the coast of Porquerolles, an island close to the city of Toulon. What am I to do? I don't know what to do. Words which capture the aimlessness we often feel at the centre of the modern world restless and out of place. This scene is at the heart of Pierre Le Fou, Jean-Luc Godard's 1965 film starring Karina alongside Jean-Paul Belmondo. It was made just after the Algerian War, a conflict which dominated the consciousness of the Nouvelle Vague in France until the revolutionary events of May 1968. The fabric of French society and its colonial history were being shaken and Godard was riding at the crest of the wave. What determines a new film movement is a break from the past and how they did things there. Pierre Le Fou opens with letters in blue and red, building in alphabetical order to form the titles. The white of the French tricolor is notably absent, leaving only the colors of revolution. The titles give way to Belmondo, reading aloud a popular art history book by Elie Fauré, the equivalent of John Berger's Ways of Seeing in France. He sits in the bath, dangling a cigarette from his bottom lip, as he does throughout the film, lecturing on the Spanish painter Diego Velázquez, who found, uh, quote, nuances of colour that he transformed into the invisible core of his silent symphony, end quote. The rest of the film breaks this order down. Through a cinematic form of parataxis, Godard smashes images, sounds and ideas together to create something entirely new through iconoclasm. 
Impressionism gives way to Cubism and abstraction, Renoir's to Modigliani's, Beethoven and Vivaldi to contemporary Yeah Yeah. It's the era of pop art of Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein. Comic books and cartoons appear throughout the film, and art is humorously bastardized. In an early scene, the American director Samuel Fuller shows up at a party, preparing to direct Flowers of Evil, a corruption of Le Fleur de Mal by Charles Baudelaire. Godard quotes literally, as in all his films, and smashes high art and mass culture together cacophonously. I want to ask how this connects to autism. This is part of the focus of our discussion today of the artistic response to art and the radical destruction of established ways of seeing the Nouvelle Vague attempted. The other part I would like us to consider is the characterization of Karina in Godard's work, especially as Marianne Renoir here. To me, Marianne is a proto-Amelie, the carefree character that I chose to be the focus of my first appearance on the Autism Through Cinema podcast. We've talked about this form of characterization as a manic pixie dream girl before, but I think it more accurate to look at her through the lens of Amour Fou. Laura Mulvey, in an essay on Godard's Prénom Carmen, considers Pierre Le Fou to be an early adaptation of Carmen by Godard writing that this is a story in which, quote, an essentially respectable and law-abiding hero is seduced by an irresistible, unfaithful woman into a descent into an underworld and a life of crime, end quote, and of course, ultimately to death. How aware of her characterization as this figure is Marianne within the film? I'll, I'll first invite you both to reflect on one of my favorite exchanges in the film. Talking in a car, Belmondo as Ferdinand, or Piero as Marianne calls him, responds, c'est la vie. And Marianne says, that's what makes me sad. Life is so different from books. I wish it were the same, clear, logical, organized, only it isn't. Is that an autistic sentiment or is there greater complexity to autistic ways of seeing? Well, first, uh, thank you for your wonderful introduction as ever, Lillian. Um, I won't deny, I think that there is something in that of the autistic perspective um the way that uh the world is fundamentally extremely complicated and messy um and the way that order uh, order is needed um but actually that also reminded me of a, a quote Godard once said which which I put to the top of my notes which is sometimes reality is too complex stories give it form and I think what I find especially interesting about uh the film in general uh, as well as Karina's character, is that it is a constant tension between creating boxes from which we can understand aspects of life, uh, relationships, art, uh, defining oneself, but it's also about tearing them apart and reordering them um, to create what we feel to be perhaps the most accurate understanding and perhaps the most... Uh, sort of accurate to oneself. And I think there's a lot of that, especially in the start of Piero, where it's about um, Ferdinand's flight from bourgeois respectability and intense materialism and his gradual sort of descent along with Marianne into this sort of, not savage, but certainly very um, isolated wilderness existence. So yes, that's my that's my first thoughts on, on the film. I'd be interested to hear what uh, you two uh, think on the subject. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm, you know, as soon as she said that 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 line, life is so different from books. I wish it were the same, clear, logical, organized. You know, 
I guess with us, with our kind of autism through cinema hat on, we're always looking for those kinds of those kinds of lines because they sort of do seem to hint towards um, certain autistic sensibilities or, uh, or ways of thinking and seeing. But I really like the idea that you you ask that sort of follow up question as of of is that an autistic way of seeing or is it actually more complicated than that? And I think this is one of those films that does. It, when we're thinking it, thinking of it in this from this perspective, it does actually succeed in showing us that that it that it is more complicated than that because everything that, that both of the characters say, both um, Marianne and um, uh, Ferdinand or Pierre uh, Pierrot, both of them have a lot of things to say throughout the film, a lot of kind of philosophical reflections and, and moments of of thought that don't necessarily match up with their actions or with what they they end up doing. Like, it's interesting that she says, life is so different from books, I wish it were the same, clear, logical and organised. Whereas later, whereas it's actually Ferdinand, who is the one who is always glued to books, and he's he's the one that always seems to sort of rely upon books to make sense of the world. He's always sort of reading out passages from various books that he's reading. Meanwhile, she seems little sort of less interested actually in, in the world of books. And she's mu she spends a lot of time in this film like just sort of needling at him because she wants him to be doing things with her or she's getting bored with him. There's a scene later on in uh, where they're sort of on, on a uh, they're kind of on an island together and they're sort of living there together for a while and he seems fairly content and and is sort of reading his books and is you know writing and on his in his diary uh while she's wandering around and looks really restless and 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 in a way she's kind of <laughs> she is a sort of agent of chaos in this film she's the one that's sort of driving them both forward she's got that energy to be keep keeping moving keeping going so it's interesting then that she has this line where she says that she wishes things were clear logical and organized and yet she seems to never be able to latch onto that logic or to that sense of organization she always seems to be wanting to be a bit more wayward and 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 uh following her feelings and following her heart through through what's going on um, but then again, that sort of switches a bit later on because later on she sort of plays uh, Ferdinand a bit towards the end in terms of getting trying to sort of get him involved, as I understand it, with the kind of crimes that are happening so that she can steal money and 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 run away from him. And all the way through the film, she's kind of has been deceiving him in many ways. So maybe she does have a bit of a plan going on. But I don't know. She's an interesting character. She's a bit of an enigma in many ways, I think. Um, uh, but it's an interesting way of of, of looking at it. Yeah. She almost goes through three different personalities within sort yeah. of three acts of the film. Um, when we first meet her, she sort of she looks like she's reading something sort of high up, and it's actually a comic book. Yeah. Um, but she's she's sort of sat there with her like her hair in sort of braided and like put up, and she's wearing this black dress. She looks very formal. Um, and then she goes the second act. She's sort of wearing these more like long dresses and sort of floating around on um, Polkarol, the um, island. And then in the last act, she's like, <laughs> Belmondo is like criticizing her for wearing clothes that are too sort of, um, that, that he finds too desirable almost. He sort of critiques how tight her trousers are, which is mm. hilarious whenever people say that trousers are tight in films <laughs> of that era, because they, we'd actually probably say those are like a relaxed bit now. But um, <laughs> she, um, she goes through these three different stages and it's sort of, she never quite knows how to almost define herself or yeah. how to behave. Um, and sometimes that 
can have quite dangerous repercussions. I mean, she's she's murderous in this film, um, and she's she's on the run from the OAS. Um, never really clear as to why she is um, or why she's being hunted down. I mean, I think that as with many things in the, in this film and the reason why I started off talking about the Algerian war is because this almost, the, 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 the films that Karina is in that Godard directs feel like they sort of follow on from each other. So mm-hmm. there's a big poster for Le Petit Soldat, which um, Godard made in 1960, wasn't released until 63. Um which is perhaps, which is his most sort of explicitly about the Algerian war film that 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 he made. So it's all I almost it's almost like we just assume that she's still connected to these people and that that's why she's on the run. Um, and and I, I suppose also those sorts of um, those aspects of her character that come later on in the film are more in line with something like Vive Sa Vie, where she plays. Um, a sex worker who sort of goes through these different chapters of, of her life um, and has this sort of, is constantly meeting new men, men fall hopelessly madly in love with her and she just gets bored with them very quickly and moves on. Um, which I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily an autistic characterization, but it's, 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 a, it's certainly an interesting one and one that, it's it's interesting that Godard himself sort of goes through so many of these muses, um, for want of a better word. Um, Ethan, what did you want to say? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. There's a couple of things <laughs> that came to mind. Yeah, uh, one is one is around. Uh, so I have not seen all of um, Godard's collaborations with Karina. I've seen about three now. Um, the one which it comes to mind most with, obviously, is Bond Pa, which mm. is uh, the probably before this one, it's the, the big crime one he makes. Um, and again, it's a sort of a, a roughly similar sort of outline in as much as it starts with Karina on the one end being sort of a little bit more, um, I think the best way to put it is, but not naive, but certainly a little bit more um, innocent perhaps. And then it transfers until obviously we get to the end and she's right in the middle of this sort of double cross uh, heist, which goes hysterically badly wrong. Um, so I think that, I think there was an interesting sort of arc there, but, uh, you were mentioning about Godard and sort of his love of muses, um, as I'm sure you guys are aware, but people on, who are listening might not be aware, the story behind the making of Pierre Lefou is a very interesting one, because basically it went round, basically it happened that he got a book called Obsession by a man called Lionel White, who is responsible for another book, I, um, which became another French new wave film, but I can't remember what it is for the life of me. But basically, uh, Godard read it, got the script ready, and then a week before he realised, I'm not interested in this film in the slightest. And so what happened was, is that effectively he, I won't say he made it up on the go, but he very much turned it into a very personal film. Uh, And I think certainly the middle act, where it is this sort of very philosophical, political debate, um... There's a lot more sort of the the abstract art there in particular, is I think very much his invention. The first and the third act very much feel like they they're the most indebted to the the original novel, and I think it's also telling as well that this was written this is written and directed during the time where Karina and Bel and Belmondo Karina and Godard's marriage was dissolving effectively. Mm. This is the 
Correct me if I'm wrong, Lillian, because I might well be. Is this their second to last film and Made in USA is their final film together in this era? I, th- I think so. I, I'm not 100% certain. Um, but it's it's interesting you saying sort of about the intersection of their lives because mm. Godard is a presence in this film. And, you know, if you start reading into sort of the production history of it, like he uses his own car for the second yeah. car when it goes into the water. And, mm. um, you know, he, he puts himself into all of his films and his relationship with Karina is clearly fraught. And he's perhaps... Fright, or, or there's almost a level of fear that comes through in sort of in Ferdinand's own fear of sort of her just sort of wandering off again that um, perhaps Godard has with Karina herself in this film. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting. <laughs> it's it's very it's it's quite. Forgive me for saying so. I sometimes think Godard in this film, and you're right. He he puts himself in pretty much. You can always find him in one of his films, um, whether it's, yeah, it's The Four Galaxy in this, or it's the fact that in two or three things I know about her, the husband looks suspiciously like Godard to the point where it's actually very creepy. <laughs> but also it's, uh, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of anger, I think, yeah. in this film as well. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of distrust. And I think it, it, it is, and I think there's a you could argue for something of that third act where Karina's character suddenly switches to this quite deceptive, treacherous mm. figure almost, who is perfectly willing to, spoiler alert, snipe two men uh, standing in a car. Mm. Uh, as Godard, you know, reflecting Godard's really intense distrust at that time. However, I think there's always a danger in assigning such simplistic mm-hmm. life life and life and art uh, contributions. Yeah. Al- although having said that with Godard, great deal, great gollops of his life appear in all of his films. And mm. indeed, um, he, he, you know, he's one of the most nakedly autobiographical filmmakers, I think, in certain ways, in as much as how much he, he puts his own love of literature, his own favourite texts, his own cinematic preoccupations into his art more than I would say, arguably, I, I certainly think perhaps more than any of the French New Waivers that I can think of, especially mm. Truffaut. Mm. Um, but that's, to be honest, that's one yeah. of the reasons I really, I I find Godard hard sometimes. I find Godard very exhausting, but I find him constantly fascinating for his, not only his self-insertion, but the way that he views cinema and he weighs the views the world which is to me the the autistic quote-unquote element of this film and i'm sure we can get to that at a later point yeah it's interesting these i mean i couldn't find a really verifiable source for this but there's a quote that i found that where chantal ackerman describes him as sort of in a negative sense as an autistic filmmaker as someone who sort of removes himself from society and the way of doing things that other people do. And I think that Godard is often sort of stereotypically characterized as autistic. I don't know if you saw um, Michel has an ambitious film, uh, Godard Mon Amour. It was released as uh, Le Ré du Peuple in, in France, um, where he's played by um, Louis Garel, who plays him as this sort of bumbling, sociopathic, almost sort of Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing slash Sherlock Holmes type figure. And he's sort of, you know, 
completely unaware of social convention, constantly pissing people off and, and making enemies everywhere because he refuses to do anything that, the way anyone else does. Um, that film's um, um, set around the time of Le Chinois and, and, and 68, so sort of towards the end of the first part of his career. After 68, his, his filmmaking changes completely. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's interesting that there is this sort of... That that's how people perceive him. There's a scene in um, Visage Village, um, Anya Svada's documentary from from what 2017, um, where she goes to Godard's house, and he just completely ignores her. He won't come out and see her um, because he won't speak to uh, you know his one of his oldest friends or whatever. And he's he's just become this sort of enigmatic recluse. And I think that sometimes. Though that sort of behaviour is stereotyped and interpreted as autistic, which is alarming. <laughs> so I, I, I'd be interested to hear what you you, you think on 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 him. You know, if we're talking about him, sort of inserting himself into the film, is that an autistic personality, or is it one that sort of, or is it a stereotyped version of autism? I suppose is what I'm trying to get at, David. Mm, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I've heard this leveled at um, Kubrick as well before. That was uh, there's there's articles written about Kubrick who who became also a bit of a, a recluse and um, uh, and a, and was also known for being quite um, standoffish or sort of detached from people. And 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 also when he worked on his films, obviously worked, worked people extremely hard and, and tended to um, to not sort of think about the, the impact of that um and yeah it's interesting that, that that there is this kind of use of the word autism as to to describe that in a negative sense i've just found that that ackerman quote that you were talking about. i just had a, had a read of it myself um and it's it's always discomforting when people say things like that when they say you know somebody who has has become maybe isolated is they've got this kind of autistic manner um I mean, it's interesting. I don't know. It's interesting because that maybe Goddard, you know, does have a certain neurodivergence, and perhaps he feels that he has been uh, misinterpreted or misunderstood, or he is frustrated in his art, and he, and it has driven him to some kind of place of isolation. I don't know. Um, the speculation on that, but the um, insertion of himself into his own films. Um, uh, this kind of self-reflective, almost metatextual approach to to being in there. I, I that's something I've often felt, thought of as being something that that has a kind of autistic, um, that is part of an autistic sensibility in some ways. Partly because I sort of feel that um, by necessity, autistic people are have to sort of really, really kind of intensively analyze life and society and, and to in order to sort of quote unquote understand it but that's only because like it's because it's not you know life and society is not set up for necessarily with autistic people in mind and so a lot there's this kind of like scrutiny that happens and I think one of the outcomes of that is this sort of tendency towards creating art which is quite self-reflexive um, and quite metatextual because it sort of breaks those frameworks and those boundaries that we think of when we're like yeah that that that's maybe perhaps non-autistic creators feel more comfortable staying within or cherish in some in, in some greater sense whereas kind of autistic creators perhaps 
have that insight into how to break out those boundaries because they've got that kind of bigger picture in a way. I don't know. I'm sort of from describing that in the right way, but um, that's sort of how I feel about that kind of connection between autism and metatextuality. And I think it's wonderful. I think it actually sort of like almost can be quite revolutionary in the ways in which we break down the forms of what we're looking at. And of course, Goddard was always doing that. Well, it's interesting that you mention about... Um... Well, first, I want to mention the the, the visages villages thing. Um, the one which which sticks in my mind is not that, but the fact that he was in an interview with Karina a few years ago before her passing, uh, very sadly. And I think somebody asked, um, "Would you ever work together again?" And Karina was like, "Oh yes, absolutely." And God, I was like, the, the, "The time for it it is not now. The time has passed." And you could hear Karina audibly gasp, and she she walks off the set in tears because mm. she is so profoundly upset and i think yeah <clears throat> look even if i think there, there is the stereotype of the autistic person being very abrasive very bad at social cues so on and so forth it's not entirely untrue in certain places and i think there are certain elements of goddard which do goddard's behavior which do fall into that category there's a, a famous letter he wrote to francois truffaut in the 1970s after seeing Day for Night, where he basically proceeded to criticise everything Truffaut did on the film and then ask for money to make a film of his own, which mm -hmm. apparently will clear up all the problems that Truffaut's film made. Uh, and that was effectively what split their friendship completely in two. Um, and, yeah, there is there is something, I think, of his... Blunt, there's, there's this bluntness, and I think certainly you can over you can overanalyze it. But there is something about the way that Godard looks at film and looks at images in particular, which does resonate with my understanding of images and of hmm. analyzation, where he is constantly pulling apart. I suppose the best way to put it is the semiotics. Hmm. He's very interested in that sort of sound signifier mode where it's all about understanding what the image means and how the image has changed meaning and he's very intent on this especially in his later works where he's really interested in how oh away from capitalism sort of the the, the constant news cycle and the proliferation of the digital image has rendered images in his mind banal and meaningless and it's it's um, and his work is very interesting in that respect, um, and the way that when we get to things like Histoire de Cinema, which is mm. for some I think is crowning achievement. Certainly, I am leaning towards that in terms of what I've seen and what I've read about it. Mm. It's this incredibly complicated visual essay where it's images on top of images and there's text and there's people reading texts and there's Goddard's own narration and there's songs. And for one thing, I watched the first episode of it a long time ago and thought, this is just how my brain, this is what X-raying my brain would look like in terms of all the various elements cutting over each other. It's the most accurate way I've ever seen it. It's exhausting to watch, but in terms of presenting all of the overlaps, it feels very familiar. And I think there is something there about be feeling removed, which I certainly think got a, I think for want of a better word, I think Ackerman is actually writing as much as I think he removes himself. He puts himself at a deliberate remove, although autism and Ackerman is its own subject, quite frankly. <laughs> um, um, 
Yeah, well, absolutely. That would be a brilliant yeah. episode. Watch this space. Um, I think that he deliberately puts himself at a remove, but in, but in a way to study how things work from the outside, to not feel that deep emotional connection to it, and to rip into how things work and how, mm. and lay them out very clearly on the table. And you can see that you can see that in all of his films, mm. especially even the early new wave films. But as he gets towards 67, 68, it becomes more obvious. You, were, you wanted to say something, Ben. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because those are all things that I wanted to talk about, and, and particularly when I say about sort of <clears throat> his career changing following yeah. post-68 and, and uh, with a film like Weekend and then moving on to, to as you say, something like Histoire de Cinema, um, Goodbye to Language, and um, Livre Image, which is his last film in one twin also 2017, I think, um, mm. which is, which I, I remember saying this, talking about sort of other filmmakers seeing Godard and, and France sort of seeing Godard as this enigmatic master now. I mean, he's, you know, so lauded and held in this high esteem. And I'm like, oh, we have to give him an award at Cannes. So we'll create a new Palm d'Or, like a special Palm, which is just for that film, because we don't understand it, but it's probably very, very good. <laughs> um, and I remember seeing that film at, at the Cambridge Film Festival and being in the cinema on my own because of course I was the only person mad enough to go and watch it um, and it's just that one's like it's like Histoire de Cinema in its sort of massive entirety crammed down to about 80 minutes of just images constantly being thrown at you and smashing into each other it's, it's, it's what I was sort of saying that he does with Pierre Le Fou he sort of blends it in with narrative that there is this form of iconoclasm which is so it's it's such an interesting way of critiquing sort of the loss, you know, like to to be very basic about it, sort of um, Walter Benjamin's um, work in the art of work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction then um, sort of loss of aura that there's a mass culture has sort of attacked the art that you know that he's he's using he's sort of smashing them together. I think that the scene with Samuel Fuller is is um, sort of it's very similar to what he does in Le Mépris, where he has um, Fritz Lang and Jack Palance, and they're all talking about cinema, and they're making this sort of Homeric Odyssey film together, <laughs> and, and 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 not being able to sort of agree on anything at all because the the styles of sort of um, Hollywood and um, old German cinema are so are so at odds with each other that the style just doesn't work at all um so i i, I think that it's this he he knows how as you say it's semiotics it's using sort of images quotations emblems to sort of stand for so much else and then sort of smashing them together that works so much better for me in something like pierre le fou because it's done more subtly and you're able to take it in and you're able to interpret mm. it whereas something like um, it's not a cinema or leave it It's so rapid, it's so fast, but you can't analyze or interpret it. And I think that says Pierre Lefou and the other films that he makes in the 60s are the films of a more optimistic younger man, whereas these, these later films are the sort of tantrums of a weary old man <laughs> who is so fed up with sound and image that he just sort of <laughs> throws it all together. Um, Ethan? I mean, 
you, you, you talk about him being optimistic in DC, and there is certainly, I think, I think especially in something like Woman is a Woman or um, even Breathless, there is a sense of optimism, even if it is sort of a cool, it, it, it's optimism in the sense of, yes, we may die, but God damn it, we'll look great while doing it, <laughs> uh, which I think is a, a, a theme that comes up a lot in his early films. Um, but there's a couple of things. There's one, I think it's Colin McCabe, and I'm probably very wrong when I, when, when I say this. Uh, either him or Rosenbaum say that uh, Pierre LeFou is uh, the sort of last film a man can only ever make once. And there's a lot of, and I mean, this is that, and I think in particular Weekend, where one of the, uh, the I think the final intertitle is End of Cinema. This is a guy who's like very much dis- either disillusioned or frustrated with how his beloved cinema, and he loves the cinema, I think, he, he adores it, um, has failed in its representation of certain subjects. He mentioned the Algerian war, Lillian, uh, yeah. and that's absolutely one of them. Later on, it also becomes the Holocaust, which becomes a real, not obsession, but a real subject of importance for him is how we, how people have either forgotten it or have forgotten the images of it proper. And for this reason, he takes a special offence at uh, Schindler's List. Mm. But I think that's a very different podcast and and I'm rambling a bit. But I, I think that... Yeah, I, I, I think that I can certainly see, as an autistic person, I can certainly see a frustration in sort of the images that you're given. And like, well, time to rip these apart, time to put them into new orders that make sense for me. Um, but also, yes, Godard, especially post-67, is incredibly hard to watch. Yeah. It's... it's um, well, especially as, as autistic okay. people, that it's a sensory form of overwhelm, right, yeah. I suppose, is yes. what I'm, try- I'm trying to get at. Sorry. Yeah. It's, 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 no, it's you're the, absolutely right. Watching something like Pierre Le Fou, there's, ob- what, you know, to come back to what I was saying at the very start, you know, there is this, this, this form of breaking things down, but it's done in a way that feels quite um, palatable, whereas yeah. uh, the later films aren't so much and there's lots no. of flashing images and it's very loud and it's, mm. it's you know you can do a relaxed screening of one of, of one of those for yes. example um no. sorry David. no it's just that, that that's talking about this makes me it's an interesting thing i think this is something that we tripped across on this podcast continually is this kind of tension i suppose that we have between like almost like wanting to see the autistic sensibility displayed on screen, but also finding that sometimes can be overwhelming and off-putting to, to watch on screen. Like I think we've, we are certainly even, even going back to our first episode about um, Punch Drunk Love and, and an early one about uh, Pi. Um, both of those films have got quite intense scenes in them, which we sort of were like, well, this is how it feels to be autistic in a sort of way. This is the autistic sensibility, but also this is really difficult to watch. And it's interesting to think about that in terms of, in terms of Goddard. But you're right, within this film, what you get is a kind of a gentler pace, I suppose, and kind of uh, uh, the, the, uh, enough of a, of a narrative. And I know he's kind of resisting narrative, but enough of a one that you can kind of sort of latch onto that and follow that through to a certain extent. And then interspersed with things like moments like the love that the two, the two most lovely moments I think in the film where where, where um, Marianne is is sort of singing and 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 it's, you know she's wandering through well 
She's wandering through her apartment where there is a dead body with a pair of scissors in its neck, but she's like singing this beautiful song for Ferdinand. And then later when, um, uh, much later in the film, they're wandering through a forest and she starts singing about her, her fake line on her hand uh, and sort of prancing around. And at those points, it sort of felt like, you know, it had that almost had a kind of film musical feel to it. It, it, it I mean, it sort of rem- that one in the this this sort of song in the forest almost reminded me of La La Land a little bit of this kind of like kind of you know these two sort of lovers drifting through and just singing at each other, and I think that the the, the sort of pace of that gives you a as you said before, Lillian, it gives you a sort of a chance to absorb what it is that that you've all just seen perhaps or the more unusual images like the one that really struck me was when they they're driving on the on the road and they they need to get rid of the car that they're in and they just come across that crashed um scene a scene of like a a, a car crash a horrendous looking car crash that's happened where there's a there's two dead bodies that look, look, look fairly similar to the to to them two you know it's a man and a woman and there's dead blood smashed glass everywhere on the smashed into this kind of like broken bit of like um like motorway that's just not rusted and not used and it's a really startling and sudden sort of break and sort of image and and he doesn't give you that much time to sort of consider what's happened why this has happened and what they're doing and then the two of them wander they, they leave their car there and try and, and sort of blow up their car make turn it on get it on fire and uh to make it look as if they've been part of that crash and then and then wander away um, so there's something in the in the pacing of this that allows them to do it. But I wonder if Goddard just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who, who knows Goddard's mind, but he seems to sort of let in later films just get frustrated with that way of making films. And he's more and more sort of trying to resist that and sort of goes more and more into this kind of difficult, uh, yeah, difficult process. Like I've seen a few of his later films, and I've always found them tricky to sort of comprehend, mm-hmm. and and I feel sort of frustrated when I'm watching them. But then again, maybe that's his point. Maybe he wants us to feel frustrated. I don't know. Sorry, go on, Ethan. I think it's interesting you mention his later films because, as Lillian was saying, obviously uh, earlier that there is a period where after '67 and '68 with the student uh, rebellions. Godard becomes part of what he calls the Ziga Vertov group, which is like this very hard line, very, very complicated, very heavy films about politics and art, uh, well, politics in particular. By 1979 and by 1980, he goes back to what he calls commercial filmmaking with things like uh, Every Man for Himself and Passion and Prenom Carman. Um, but, but I think what's interesting is even then, those are very complicated films. Those are films where he's constantly pushing boundaries. I think, I think you can see his career as almost an advance and retreat. It's a moment of, I love the cinema. Well, I hate the cinema, but I think I can do different things with it. But I love the cinema, but I also hate the cinema and the fact that <laughs> I can't do what I want with it. So I just hate the cinema. And increasingly, his films have become more and more abstract and more fractured as they go, go along. So... Um, Nouvelle Vague from 1990 is very, very different to, say, uh, uh, Goodbye to Language or something like Elle pour moi. It's very, very different to uh, Elogie d'Amour. But I, again, I, 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 I want to talk a little bit more about the, um, the fact that Godard is overwhelming. And I think something that does come up in Pierre Lefou is just how colourful it is. Mm-hmm. And there is a synesthetic quality yeah. to it. 
definitely. Definitely. And I think that's an important part that we need to acknowledge about the experience because it's not just an experience of intellect in terms of um, tearing things apart, looking at all the references, T.S. Eliot, mm. uh, Velasquez, so on and so forth, Joyce, uh, movie musicals, but it's also about how those very bright pops of colour make you feel mm. or how the moments where violence happens makes you feel. For example, the two that you, you mentioned earlier, David, the, the scene where there's a bloke with scissors stuck in his neck. Well, that scene obviously is repeated later with the, mm. with the little short man um, and you see the scissors in his neck and just all the blood bubbling out. And it's this bright, bright, yeah. almost hammer Kensington. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great minds, great minds. Um, it's this beautiful, it's, 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 it's very unsettling. Mm-hmm. And this is also a film where colour is used, as you rightly said in the opening, Lily, this is a film of pop art. This is a film of yeah. the year of pop art. <clears throat> And it's using colour in a pop art manner. I, I think it's quite like, but uh, Rothko, I think, is the closest analogy because it's these big bands of colour, mm. either in a frame or juxtaposed in different frames. And I think there's there's something which is both incredibly tantalising and pleasurable about just the intensity of that colour. I mean, the beautiful uh, Corsican. Uh, skies, the yeah. the bright red Peugeot, the, the 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 party at the beginning, which is every mm. scene has just got a different light filter on it. So the the, the Sam Fuller one is very blue. It's it's gorgeous, but also it adds to that sort of level of oh god, what am I watching? This is too intense. <laughs> mm. So I was wondering what you guys thought of that. Yeah, I know. I mean, I I sort of loved all the colours throughout it. It's such a colourful. Technicolor film, um, bright reds and bright blues in particular, and they seem to, um, I mean, it's the it's the blue and and the red of of the French flag, as you mentioned in your in your um, introduction, Lillian. Um, this you know very stark sort of um, very bright blues, bright reds. So the cars are often blue and red. The, what they're wearing is often blue and red, and then of course at the at the very end, um, Ferdinand paints his face blue, blue as well. And this is after this comes right at the end after he's after he's shot and killed Marianne um, uh, and is sort of not sure what to do with himself. And he's, he's wearing red at that time and paints mm. his face blue. Um, and then also I lost all of the, 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 the kind of cartoon um, comic book style that runs throughout the whole film, but particularly with the dynamite that he wraps around his head at the end, which just looks like it's come from a cartoon. And it, it mm. kind of makes that sort of what is a really bleak way of killing yourself um, like a, a wily coyote yes like a wily style, coyote yeah. <laughs> it's got a kind of real silliness to it um and, and comedic value to it um which i really enjoyed all the way through and also obviously that that also they've, they've got that kind of that that kind of comic book as well that they're carrying around through a lot of the the film um that he you see them both reading it at various times yeah. as well so there's a kind of comic book attitude in there which which folds into this 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 pop art pro, um this pop art kind of vibe i'll tell you what that the that that party those kind of colors that reminded mm-hmm. me of like the you know of like warhol's like kind of repeated marilyn yeah. monroe's it sort of has exactly. that kind of um that kind of feel to it um although in that scene he's sort of it's that's where he's getting bored isn't he of all of these kind of people it, th- th- mm-hmm. these people that are at this party who are just like, talking about boring inconsequential things like hairspray and cars and stuff like that and and he clearly feels himself to be 
better than or above that and he's just sort of wandering past these people and blowing smoke in their faces and just getting increasingly more bored by the by the situation and that light makes everyone very flat against these kind of mm. tableaus that they, they're almost like paintings where they're sort of just still against the walls yeah. um but yeah the color i don't know I, that was one of the, th the things that for me that was most joyful about this film was just the, the bursts of color constantly all the time everywhere i, I really liked that about it yeah Sorry, go on. Mm. No, not at all. Um, I just was thinking, you know, because I, I said about these these colours, and and you're you're right that it's like I I sort of you try to try to read more politically into those colours of blue and blue and red without the white, the sort of yeah. the white of, of of the French monarchy and the blue and red of the sort of um, revolutionary storming the Bastille, and that's what comes to the fore but it's a revolutionary spirit but i think you can just look at them on a, the, the the most sort of you know gcse textbook level of 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 of, of what sort of the colors blue and red sort of represent and and, the, and then that scene was sort of that sort of nauseating green that, that that sort of washes over um fuller talking about making flowers of evil and 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 um, belmondo just sort of muttering burglars to himself like you know um and there's sort of these two characters we have the sort of the the piero as as marianne keeps referring to um ferdinand as um the the piero is sort of the um archetype clown yeah. harlequinish character the sort of sad clown look you know um and and he, he sort of paints his face in sort of clownish makeup and it's blue at the end that he is this sort of melancholic figure the sort right. of doomed man who you know or nothing ever goes quite right for him um whereas whereas marianne i mean the name marianne itself of course being a reference a, a sort of revolutionary reference almost and 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 Renoir being as her, her surname is again the sort of wink both to cinema and to the history of art. Yeah. Um, that she is this character, she is this sort of emblem of all that men desire but cannot mm. quite have. Um, and that she is this sort of Amufu character, that she is sort of this red, lusty, but also infuriating persona. Um, so I, I suppose that that's what I was trying to get at. I mean, it was part of the reason why I chose this film was I immediately think of Karina's characters in Godard films as being sort of... I don't necessarily think of them as autistic. It's more that I relate to them very strongly and yeah. therefore assume that there's an autistic element to that. Um, so I, supp I suppose I'm interested to sort of talk about that that idea of Amafu or sort of I suppose the modern version is is Manic Pixie Dream Girl. It's not quite the same. There's there's yeah. more of a sort of, you know, Manic Pixie Dream Girl appears in order to help man find himself or whatever. Mm. Ferdinand never does that in this film. You know, he's he's very much sort of more frustrated by her than actually he's trying to get to to learn about himself. And he's reading all this sort of poetry and philosophy on on the beach and um, doesn't quite manage to do so um yeah what, what do what do you make of, well, of that there's also the touch of the femme fatale about her as well a little bit isn't there and i suppose in the way she's sort of gun running and hand and shooting people and and uh deceiving people as well there's a there's a kind of uh, she's, she's got that kind of it's interesting you bring up that kind of manic pixie dream girl idea as well and, and the fact that she might she's sort of a kind of proto amelie or proto um 
yeah, it's sort of forerunner for these kinds of characters because there is a, you know, people sort of, there's been criticisms, isn't there, been about sort of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl character, but then there's also been kind of re- more recently a re-analysis re- of them in, as a potential kind of versions of neurodivergent women, potentially, of be- these people, these women who are slightly more outsider-ish and, and more interested in things that are not particularly classically womanly but are in a kind of independent and a kind of uh yeah it's yeah it's, uh it's interesting i'm sorry i didn't have any further thought than that other than the fact that um there's the, the, there's the one thing that i i noted down that i thought that i sort of snagged on that i thought was really interesting the kind of conversation that her and um ferdinand have when they're on the beach after she so he's sitting there writing in his diary and he's got this parrot on his knee and she's wandering along the 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 shore um and uh they then can sort of have a, a conversation it's the bit where she says he, he says well why are you sad um and she says you speak to me with words and i look at you with feelings mm-hmm. and uh which is a I, I think an often quoted bit of this of this film mm-hmm. but i think what was really interesting was the um what he says and she says after that so he says i can't have a real conversation with you you never have ideas only feelings and then she says um uh, yeah but feelings have ideas inside and it's i, I just thought it was a really interesting conversation between the two of them and it really highlights for me that the difference between these two people i read something about how this is a film about two people who love each other or supposedly love each other but never understand each other i can never actually connect to each other and i think she wanders off again at the end of that scene saying mm-hmm. we don't understand each other and they never do all the way through the film they've got this lovely they can dance together and they can kiss together and they can do crimes together in a kind of body and clyde kind of way and they can kind of uh, and they, there is clearly an affection and a love between them, but there's also this fundamental misunderstanding between them. And it did make me think it, it, it's sort of centered on the ways in which they, the, the differences in which they feel emotions and express their emotions mm-hmm. with each other and even apart from each other and in a way that never seems to gel together. And I feel that that, that has an interesting correlation with some of the ways that we've been thinking about how autistic and non-autistic people don't always fully sort of understand mm-hmm. or connect to each other in a way. Sorry, go on, Ethan. No, I was I was about to reflect that that I that interestingly, when I posted a review of Piano Fu on Letterboxd, a mate of mine who I have occasional contact with, she's never seen a Godard, but she was like, Oh yeah, no, a friend recommended it to me. And then like when I saw this screenshot, and it was a screenshot of that exact line of the I, I uh, what is it? I look at you, you you talk to me with words, but I look at you with feelings. Yeah. And there is there is something, yeah, there's something very very poignant there, especially in terms of I am certainly one of those people who perhaps looks more with words, mm-hmm. uh, talk talks with words. It, it's it's my way of understanding things, and so I certainly. You know, and feelings sometimes are just these complicated masses of emotion. Having said that, that's also it can also be quite an isolating experience. And I think something that to to mention there is, uh, Lillian, you picked up on the fact that obviously Marianne uh, is the as the uh, symbol of resistance. Uh, Belmondo's character in this is called Ferdinand, and from what I can have gathered, that is a deliberate reference to Louis Ferdi- Ferdinand Celine who was mm-hmm. a famous author of the, for, for those who aren't 
aware who are listening, who's a famous author of the 1930s who made a book called wrote a book called Journey to the Edge of Night, uh, which is about a very which is a very very depressing, very bleak novel about a young man during World War One, and the sort of the, the nihilism he 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 gradually begins to feel and sort of. The despair he feels, and I think there's something relevant there to to Ferdinand, which is that he wants to get away from everything. He wants to get away into nature, <clears throat> with, with obviously a girl that he sees as being, um, you know, exciting and 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 different and um, to to what he's used to. But once he gets there to this nature, he can't really find much else to mm. do there. Mm. He, he's content there reading his books, um, but yeah, he he doesn't. He doesn't solve his problems as sometimes I think moving away from everybody would do. It simply exchanges them for new problems, which mm. are which are ultimately his downfall. But I would like to briefly mention Karina a little bit more. Uh, Lillian already knows this because I've spoken to her about this uh, off screen. But um, there's a couple of other Karina performances which I'd like to bring into the, the consideration. I don't think anyone has seen them but me. Uh, one is in her own film, Vivre Ensemble, which I've seen about 20 minutes of, which is um, a, uh, is it, to be fair, it was not my cup of tea, but it was a very, it was an interesting sort of experience. It's her playing this sort of, it's her in the 70s and she's sort of this hippie-ish figure who eventually sort of shacks up with this very straight-laced professor type. And so you've got a sort of a bit of a, and she's sort of this free spirit uh, element to it. But also, perhaps more presciently, is The Wedding Ring, uh, also known as Lea Léonce, which was made in 1970, uh, and it stars Jean-Claude Carrière, who, write, who writes it and stars in it from his own book. Um, and she plays uh, the newlywed wife of this eccentric vet who is obsessed with sort of covering his, uh, their, their new house with animals. And it's as much about, um, uh, obviously, I, I find the, the career character quite autistic, but also there's something sort of uh, intriguingly sort of offbeat and slightly removed from society uh, for Karina's character as well, who will simply go off and do, go off and do her own thing and then, you know, not explain it to the husband, and the husband thinks that obviously he's she's having an affair, but it's something a lot more sort of simple. It's just like she has her own existence; she doesn't feel it necessary to justify. There's something about the way that she articulates herself and speaks in that film, which does also feel, if not autistic, then certainly precursor to this manic pixie dream girl thing. Which also, to be fair, the author of which eventually routed and said, "Yeah, I had no idea what I was talking about." And basically said, "This is a load. I wrote a load of rubbish, which I found quite um, mm. intriguing in that respect." This is probably another tangent, but I thought it was interesting to bring these other elements yeah, of in of Karina as a larger as a larger cultural figure, because after Godard, she moves and works with people like Andre Malveaux and Fassbender, and so there's there's there's, there's something there to be said of Karina as a figure as well. I think, which mm. I think Lillian might you might be a little bit more capable to talk about than I. That's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, because I think that what, what, what's so relevant to me in terms of my interpretations of her, her and her performances is that it is so intimately connected to Godard and, and Godard's sort of 
these these the, the female figures within his I mean there's sort of the one before her is sort of Jean Seberg in Abu Dassouf and and which is sort of very similar to Pierre Lefou in many ways. You have um, the, you have all of these images of old Hollywood, of Hollywood movies and things. People like Bogart on 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 the walls and stuff, and these cuts to um, you know and self reference. You know she's she's selling um, New York Herald Tribune, but there's also copies of sort of Cahiers de Cinema floating around in the film, and um, she she she's sort of. Um, yeah, there's 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 similar sort of conflicts is what I'm trying to say, and 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 it's perhaps it's even more noirish because it's in black and white, which helps <laughs> for a film to feel like a noir. Um, Belmondo sort of has this 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 hat that he wears that makes him look a bit like Bogey and, and sort of those those 1940s films, and um, uh, Jean Jean Pierre Melville shows up is that right it is Murphy on the bridge um who she's sort of in, in, in interviewing so the, the, it, it's he sort of creates within that film this style it's it's more low budget it's more guerrilla guerrilla rather in in terms of the way that it's it's made than perhaps something like Pierre Lefou is which feels a bit more you know something something like the Mepuy which is like in in widescreen, gorgeous, like lavish cinematography, that sort of incredible swelling Georges Delarue film, uh, theme that comes through throughout the film. And it's the same, same in here with um, Antoine Dumas' music, that it's sort of the same piece of music used over again, um, but also connected classically to things like Beethoven's Fifth, which just sort of erupts quite early in the film. And then there's um, Vivaldi's Flute Concerto, which, which comes in. So it's, it's constantly sort of got its foot in the present, and in the past, and I, I, I think that this era and the reason why I love these films from the sixties that he makes is is that these female characters just sort of float around within it all. That they 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 exist on on feeling and impulse, which is how I kind of you know we were talking about sort of <laughs> the thinking in words, thinking in feelings. When I think about films that are autistic that doesn't come from an intellectual understanding of autism it doesn't come from me having sort of looking at autism very clinically and sort of diagnosing films it's more me watching films and seeing how it resonates with with me and sort of connecting that to my own sense of neurodivergence and how my brain works and how um i i sort of exist and behave in the world um and maybe that is maybe that is specifically feminine i i i, I don't know i mean goddard has a very i think has a very clear understanding of gendered difference you know he he has a very sort of binary way of thinking about how women behave and how men behave um and that exists throughout his films. If you think of a film like Unfermist and Fem, I mean, the fact that he makes a film called Unfermist and Fem and um, Masculine Feminine, you know, all of these, these these films where he's sort of, you know, there there is an element of the sort of moody French man finds that he can understand all of the philosophical questions in the universe, but there is one that eludes him, and that is the nature of woman, um, you know, um, which which. I find appealing. I don't know why I find that appealing. I find it interesting as 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 a way of of, of looking, um, and it it's fascinating because it's quite funny as a woman watching those films because it's like, well, 
<laughs> you're missing the, the there's an essential point here that you seem to be missing and it, there is there is an element of humor to it and i like the way that the, the women in his films almost sort of make mockery of that and just don't care it's like in that scene where, where, that we're talking about which is at the heart of the film i started my introduction with um you know it's like she's she's a mystery to the philosophical man almost um which i suppose in some ways is is the, is is similar to how people understand neurodivergence or neurotypical people trying to understand neurodivergence and conversely neurodivergent people trying to understand neurotypical people i mean i know that that completely baffles me and i will never understand it um and sometimes you just have to sort of accept that there is a level of, of difference there um sorry i've been rambling a lot no no it's good it's good <laughs> it's perfect yeah it's a sort of beautiful but tragic eternal mystery that no one can ever solve like and but also yeah. that, that at the heart of which sort of generates art in a way like it's mm. like that's 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 what we're always trying to sort of figure out by 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 creating these kinds of things it's it's just fascinating that it, that's always the same but what, what what that was just reminding me of is, is one other uh, scene or, or kind of moment that i wanted to sort of uh, highlight that i thought was really interesting and this comes right at the end just before um just before ferdinand gets on the boat to go across to the island where he eventually will um kill Marianne and, and wrap dynamite around his head, etc. Um he encounters this man on the pier at the end, sort of on sitting on the pier who is kind of like singing to himself. He's kind of like humming this tune to himself. And then this guy and they have this like, well not really a conversation. This guy just gives him this like anecdote about stroking hands of women. Right. And again, this sort of like taps into this kind of what you've just been talking about about like men not understanding women or not understanding how to seduce them or how to understand them properly and this guy has seemed to be seemingly been driven a little bit crazy by this this tune that has been following him around for many many years that he associates with various women that he's tried to sort of get together with and he talks about saying well i stroked to stroking the back of her hand and it was singing the song la, 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 and stroking the front of her hand and i tried a different thing and then i tried both the front and the back of the hand <laughs> i was sort of really compelled by this by this moment because i just thought who is this curious figure who's suddenly yeah. here and is dominating the, the film which is just this little section and i really loved his little singing and also we can hear the tune that he is mm. Um, talking about and I, this is one of the things I found really interesting about this film was the use of music and 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 where music comes in the the scenes I was talking about earlier with um, uh, Marianne like kind of singing in the apartment and in the woods there is you can also hear the, the music as well that is that it sort of accompanies that singing that she's doing yeah. but there's nowhere on screen that we can there's nobody's there playing the piano there's no the, the music's not actually there so it's this curious kind of like I think it's called extra diegetic. I think in yep. in in uh, uh, film studies terms uh, uh, of this kind of music being present but also kind of not present, and it's sort of the soundtrack, but it's also kind of in the film, sort of that sort of feel. And then we have this guy, and he's doing this thing, and then at the end of that bit, he says, "There's the music stops. You can't hear the music anymore." And then he says to um, Ferdinand, "He says, can't you hear this? Can can you hear it? Can you hear it?" And Ferdinand's like, "No, no, no, I can't hear it." And he's like, "Oh, well, but I can, I can hear it." And there's this curious sense that this guy's got this like music just constantly playing in his head constantly that sort of like a soundtrack 
his life and his relationships and this like long marriage that he clearly has been sort of trapped into and feel yeah. really frustrated because you know, he gets really frustrated. I just thought it was a really interesting scene. I just wanted to know what you guys thought made of that moment. Yeah, um, I, I suppose the main thing I is, is that that man is Raymond Deveaux, who is a, yeah. a, a a mime and a French sort of comedian and trained with Marcel Marceau. And this is this, this, all this. He is literally the Piero in the film. Um, right. That he yeah, yeah. he is sort of he is, you know, Marianne keeps calling Ferdinand Piero, and he's like, "Why are you calling me that?" <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. This is an actual Piero who's actually on on screen at this point, and and ties into the sort of. Um, clowning idea that 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 we've sort of we talked about more in relation to Chaplin and silent silent comedy in 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 the last um in our last discussion where um you have this sort of exaggerated form of expression and that scene is so exaggerated it's so in isolation from everything else and he's this sort of he just sort of inserts himself into the film and appears and 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 um the same in the same way that the music does that he is almost he is almost an extra diegetic character he's sort of like yeah. is he really there has he just sort of uh, is he an apparition that has appeared to Ferdinand sort of at, at the point in the film um to help him sort of reflect on how as you uh, you know tying back to what I was saying about sort of the mystery of woman that it's like men sometimes men are like well I did all the things that you're supposed to do I stroke mm. her hand this way I stroke her hand that way you know what what, what can I do how can she resist me um, which is the sort of egoism of men I, I suppose which is very much sort of at the core of um, of, of Goddard's personality and of Goddard's cinema um, and as uh, as is always the case is sort of, is sort of doomed to and that, that ties it back to Amosu and, and Carmen and, and sort of the idea of the, the man who sort of is completely besotted by this woman who remains out of reach and ultimately will lead him to his tragic death. Um, and, and, and also, I suppose there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a dangerous misogynistic element to that in that he also mm. kills her. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. if I can't have you because you, yeah. you're going to go off with someone else he reacts with violence and yeah. that's incredibly alarming <clears throat> and sadly as as much as you know Goddard does recognize as you rightly said uh, uh, uh not a gender binary so much because that has weird that that unfortunately sometimes has very unpleasant terminology around it but certainly there's there's an essential element there's there's a difference between <clears throat> masculine and feminine as as the title of one of his films suggests <laughs> um yeah even when you get something like the eighties, his films are not kind to women. They're they're very probing films, both in terms of female psychology and usually coming up with uh, "Do not understand the woman." Uh, so I apologise for my terrible accent, um, which should definitely get get me sent to accent jail. Um, but also. Um, he becomes increasingly obsessed with filming naked women uh, in very, very um, uh, close-up uh, sort of shots and very much emphasising their nakedness. And indeed, this got a bit a bit tricky at one point where I think he was making Forever Mozart, and I believe that the actress mm -hmm. who he had at that point decided was his muse refused to, to, to get naked for one of the scenes causing a very large row between him and her. So, yeah, I, 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 
Goddard's, Goddard's position on women, I think, is a very icky one sometimes. I think I think it's less obvious in something like Pierre Lefou, apart from obviously the, you know, he, he kills the femme fatale at the end in the classic noirish trope. Um, yeah, it does get worse. Uh, but my, my point was that it pr- it predates that by some yes, way. No, you I, know, well, this, no, I agree with you. But I think this is a film made in a sort of classical French um, narrative style. That, which... that is true. But even then, I think there are certain... I think the seeds are there, perhaps, right? if I might say. And I also think as well that there are certain French directors who are known for less yes. than pleasant descript- depictions of women. The one which comes mm-hmm. to mind is Delivier, who yeah. does outright tip into misogyny and something like deadlier than the male. Yeah, yes, but that, that's, that, that's partly why I introduced that, that idea of narrative through Mulvey's essay mm-hmm. on, on Bruno. I mean, she she's written a number of essays <clears throat> on Godard, none that I could find that are sort of explicitly just on Pierre Lefou, but um, her essay on uh, Le Mépris, which is published in her latest book, um, After Images, is, is fascinating because she's talking again, you know, Bard, the way she she films Goddard's not a she Goddard, the way that he films um, Brigitte Bardot in the Mepuis and Michelle Piccoli is sort of sat there sort of stroke, tracing her body and saying and she's saying oh I don't like my thighs I don't like my bottom I don't like whatever and he's going oh no you're so perfect you're like a sculpture from antiquity um, that yeah there, there is that gaze present in so much of his films I don't think it's quite so prevalent in Pierre Lefou, um, or indeed of Karina more broadly. It's more mm-hmm. a, it's more, whereas with someone like Bardo, it's very sort of, um, it's it's almost inquisitive in a way of sort of examining her her body and her and uh, 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 whereas with with Karina or Gene Seberg, for example, it's more detached and quizzical and interested and <laughs> sort of trying to understand through observation rather than inspection, I think is what I'm trying to, to get at there. And I think another element of that also is to do with Godard's fascination with pop culture in as much that Bardot was not, in the, in the way that Karina and Seberg were actresses and were well-known for that, for, became well-known for their acting, Bardot started, Bardot was well-known at that time for being a sex symbol and was being a a symbol of beauty and, uh, you know, uh, the high life, shall we say. And so uh, 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 you're absolutely right. There is that sort of more intensive gaze. And I think that's also to do with his fascination with, again, pulling apart popular images. The fact that it's the image of a woman and he does so in a way that could be interpreted as not misogynistic, but certainly leaning towards that makes that more complicated in mm. my mind. But yes, you're, yeah. you're absolutely right, of course. Yeah, I, th- I think that as a good way to sort of end this discussion and sort of tie it back to what I was saying at, at the start is that it is more psychoanalytical than perhaps that, that film is, 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 mm, what, is what we're trying to say. And, and the, the whole film is, is not is a study of... of of women and and particularly of Karina, but also as we've also discussed of 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 art more broadly, and that sometimes the way to analyze and understand is to pick apart and deconstruct, um, which I think is what's so so fascinating about the new Felvark and 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 what um, what what Pierre Lefou invites us to reflect on in an autistic context.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a nice place to end things there then, I think. Uh, thank you very much to to the pair of you, to Ethan and to Lillian, um, especially for your uh, beautiful introduction, as always, Lillian, which was great. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. And again, uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do, um, you could leave us a review. I think that's what people do with podcasts. Uh, you could share this <laughs> around with with friends. Um, of course, this is something where it's not just this kind of niche area where we just want autistic people to be listening. Or this is something where we want as many people as, as possible to be listening to this. So do share it around. Um, and thank you. And we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, and so for now, uh, au revoir. Bye bye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.